0: From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, November 30th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. intense fighting around the Syrian capital Damascus today. This activist describes a wave of looting by government soldiers.
1: Looting seems to be the most popular crime for those people because they make a lot of money. They will take whatever they can carry and if they can not take it they will just destroy it. This was actually the case of all my furniture in my house.
0: And we learn about a possible huge climate change multiplier, the release of methane from the warming Arctic.
2: It's sometimes been called the potential Arctic methane catastrophe.
3: MRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com.
0: I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. In Syria, fighting raged around the main airport in Damascus for a second day today. Syrian rebels are ramping up efforts to topple President Bashar al-Assad, and they seem to be gaining momentum. But the Syrian government still has lots of big armaments, and its air force turned them on rebel positions near the airport today. Meantime, Syria's Internet and telephone systems were shut down for a second day running. But activist Amr al-Sadek in Damascus says people are finding ways to get around the communication blackout.
1: I'm using a satellite internet connection. Actually, very few activists in Damascus and Damascus countryside have this. We're managing somehow well with it. Otherwise, the internet is shut down on most of the areas. Everybody I know in Damascus and Damascus countryside doesn't have an internet connection over the last two days.
0: Do you have uh, telephone access?
1: It works sometimes. Satellite phones like Irigium and Inmarsat also still work fine, and those are, as far as we know, so far now, are safe. They're not traceable by the regime, and we, we're using them.
0: Amr, describe for us what else is going on around you.
1: Obviously, there has been clashes between the Free Syrian Army battalions and the regime units. We know that the airport itself is not a target for the Free Syrian Army. However, the confrontation line has moved a little bit. It was extended from the eastern outskirts of Damascus all the way to the airport. Most of the villages along the airport have been subject to shelling or a heavy machine gun from the helicopters over the last two weeks.
0: Are there other things that you can point to right now that have changed over the past couple of days?
1: The most serious escalation by the regime is cutting the internet and most of the cellular communication, along with the electricity in some parts of Damascus, so nobody knows what's going on. Inside Damascus itself, a lot of people have to do the walking... Basically, because if you use a car, it will not move on the checkpoints because they're extensively searching all the cars and some of the roads are already blocked.
0: We're speaking to you as an activist who is based in Damascus, but we can hear in the background, I think you have a child there, so you're also a father. I wonder if you can tell us in terms of daily life, and this would apply clearly to people who support the government as well, what is life like?
1: daily necessities that everybody needs are not easy to get and they're like two, three times the price sometimes. Baby milk, for example, diapers. Also a lot of people have to move a lot to avoid the bombing. The family of my wife had to relocate twice over the last month. And I had relocated a long time before only to avoid the random shelling on my area. Most of the people in my neighbourhood, including me, lost all their property during the regime raid on the area. What the regime uses to give an incentive for its soldiers is the green light for looting, rape and everything. And looting is—it seems to be... The most popular crime for those people because they make a lot of money. They will take whatever they can carry. And if they cannot take it, they will just destroy it. This was actually the case of all my furniture in my house.
0: Is a post-Assad regime something that you feel confident about, given what's happening with the rebels in terms of their different aims for the future?
1: After an armed conflict, there's nothing you can be confident of. However, this revolution went out for good reason. This uprising went out to get rid of a 40-year-old dictatorship, and getting rid of this is not something you will end up with a democracy the second day. It's going to take a lot of work, and there are some bad scenarios that need to be avoided at the same time. In any case, being subject to shelling every day will just make you worry about your daily necessities, and this is the case of almost every single Syrian inside. However, This is the role of the international community, the opposition outside the coalition, for example, and everybody else to really engineer the period after the Assad regime. We need that period to be of less bloodshed as much as possible. And we need it to go really quickly towards Syria as a democracy. This needs to be the effort of everybody, whether Syrian or in support of the Syrian cause. Amr, thank you. Thank you, Liza.
0: That's opposition activist Amr al-Sadek in Damascus, Syria. In the opinion of George Friedman, rebel forces have reduced President Assad to little more than the top warlord in Syria. Friedman is the CEO for Stratfor. That's a global intelligence company based in Austin, Texas. It specializes in geopolitical security analysis. George Friedman, what is the evidence that Bashar al-Assad is merely a warlord?
4: What I'm saying is the Syrian government has collapsed. It no longer governs Syria. However, Assad's forces, its military forces and political forces, remain very potent, control the areas where they are operating, can occasionally reach out and control other areas, are not going to be able to reassert control over all of Syria, but are unlikely to disappear or be defeated. There are many people deeply committed to the regime, benefiting from the regime, terrified of what the rebels might bring. And they certainly have the military force available to survive. So what we're going to see here is, well, I think we should stop thinking of Assad as the government of the country. That's kind of a sentimental view of the past. What he is is a powerful warlord. He is not to be trifled with. He's not likely to simply collapse. And the enemy that he has is unlikely to congeal into a force that can really challenge his existence although they will likely form coalitions that will govern the rest of the country. And this is why I compare it to Lebanon. If you think of how Lebanon is governed with uh, various forces and militias holding sway in different areas, none of them able to simply annihilate each other, none of them able to control the government. We've seen that extended to Syria. And I think this can go on for a very long time this way.
0: I don't know if you uh, and Stratfor are advising the U.S. government right now. We're not. Okay. If you were, what would you be telling them?
4: pretty much what President Obama is doing, which is stay away, try to influence it by political means, provide weapons to various sides if you possibly can. But beware that the amount of force that would be required to bring this situation under control, the United States probably doesn't have, doesn't want to spend. And the humanitarian catastrophe that would result in the kind of war that would be waged would at least be on the order of Iraq, if not worse.
0: How about arming the rebels?
4: You can arm the rebels, and I think that is going on, but you can't organize the rebels. And you have to understand that the rebels are not just divided because they haven't noticed each other. Many of them don't like each other. Many of them are hostile to each other. When the only thing you have uniting you is your hatred of another clan, the Assad clan, that's not enough to hold together a political coalition.
0: I wonder in the bigger picture what America's interests are and how intertwined they are with with the end of the Bashar al-Assad government.
4: The United States does not have pressing interests in Syria per se. It had one interest, which it achieved. It did not want to see Bashar Assad survive as a puppet of the Iranian government. The Iranians have suffered a substantial defeat. They put a lot of money and they put a lot of effort and advisors into sustaining the regime, and they failed. And so from the United States' point of view, what it would have wanted in Syria, it already has. And therefore, you know, you go to Washington, you hear people say, should we intervene and should we not intervene? This is coming from human rights groups. And it sounds like the conversations that were being held before Iraq, as if we had the option to intervene. And if we intervened, that it would go quickly, they'd greet us with flowers, and that the regime that would emerge would be friendly. Well, none of those proved true in Iraq next door. And I doubt that they will prove any truer in Syria.
0: George Friedman is CEO of Stratfor, a global intelligence company. In Austin, Texas, he's also author of the book The Next Decade about the major events and challenges that will test America over the coming years. Nice to speak with you, George. Thank you. Mosques don't usually welcome gay and lesbian worshippers, but today a Muslim group just outside of Paris held what's being billed as the first gay-friendly Islamic worship in Europe. The group also allows men and women to pray together. The location of the event was kept secret. That's for security reasons. But the role's Amy Bracken met the man who launched this project. Who is he, Amy?
5: Well, this is a 35-year-old man named Ludovic Mohamed Zayed. He's Algerian-French, and he was raised in a Muslim family. He became a devout Muslim. He studied uh, Salafism for several years. He was very dedicated, and when in his late teens he realized that he was gay, he struggled to reconcile this with his religion, which he felt condemned homosexuality. He left Islam. He tried to become a Buddhist, but he, he also said that he discovered that there were Buddhists who were not accepting of homosexuality. homosexuality and condemned it in the name of religion. So finally, he realized this wasn't about the religion itself. It was about an interpretation. So he went back to Islam and he decided that he was really going to fight for a different interpretation of Islam. And um, and he started this organization, Muslim Homosexuals in France, two years ago. And shortly after that, he started to talk about opening a mosque in which people could feel a little bit more comfortable about who they were as homosexuals, as women, as transgendered people, and others.
0: Yeah, there are several things that are different about this mosque, one of them being, as we said, that men and women are allowed to pray together when usually the women are in the back of the mosque itself. There are never men facing the women. But for him to be able to do this, he has to keep the location itself secret. What do you know about the place itself?
5: Well, he actually befriended a Buddhist monk who has a Buddhist space outside of Paris, So he's able to use this space as a mosque every Friday. And so he's actually looking for a a permanent space that can be actually called this inclusive mosque. So right now it's just temporary. I think it's a small space. It's discreet. Without knowing the details of it, I understand that there are about 20 or 30 people who are expected to show up this evening, but as the word spreads, there will be probably more people who will show up and there's a question of whether or not the word will really get out about where it's located, especially when they've established their own space.
0: Are they worried about safety? Is that one of the reasons that they're keeping the location quiet?
5: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a mix of things. Uh, this started to get a lot of press attention here. And so people who wanted to be able to pray in peace this evening did not want to have journalists around. But also, certainly, if you go on their website, you see that there are some really nasty, hateful comments. And even though they think these are probably just comments and probably nothing would happen, they just say it's better safe than sorry.
0: I know that you, Amy, spoke with the head of uh, the, the Paris Great Mosque, Le Grand Mosquee. What did he tell you?
5: Well, Dalil Boubacar was interesting. He was one of the Muslim leaders who I spoke with who is supposedly at the progressive end of things and pretty open. But he was very adamant when the question of this mosque that's open to openly homosexual people came up and he said that this is just not possible. This is what he said when we spoke yesterday.
3: C'est inconceivable. You cannot have that in your mind. Impossible. As Muslim of a Biblical religion, you cannot concept in your brain uh, that you can build a holy place for such marriages.
0: He's talking about gay marriage there, correct?
5: Yeah, that's right. So this isn't being created specifically for gay marriages, but that is one idea that gay marriages will take place here. Gay marriage is expected to become legal next year, so that's why this would be relevant and so so what he's saying is that he he recognizes homosexuality exists he doesn't condemn anyone for being homosexual it's just you know something that happens in nature but he also says you know this is just muslim law we just can't approve of it and so once an institution accepts people who are open, openly homosexual it ceases to be a mosque
0: The world's Amy Bracken speaking to us from Paris thanks very much Amy Thanks Lisa The U.S. Army private charged with giving WikiLeaks classified documents and his life in an 8-by-6-foot cell coming up later on PRI, Public Radio International.
3: The world is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com.
0: I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. As global climate negotiators meeting in Doha, Qatar this week, there are scientific warnings, new ones on climate change, coming fast and furious. Yesterday, we told you that this year is on track to be one of the warmest on record. Well, today, there's a report that the polar ice sheets are melting three times faster than they were in the 1990s. A common factor in those trends the rising level of carbon dioxide from industrial air pollution. But there are other sources of dangerous greenhouse gases that are just starting to come into focus. One that scientists issued a stern warning about this week is methane from the melting Arctic. Sam Eaton has our report.
6: If you want to understand one of the ways that warming in the Arctic is affecting climate change, just light a match and stand back. That's the sound of researchers from the University of Alaska Fairbanks igniting gas seeping from a lake on the Alaskan tundra.
7: There's the methane coming out right there, that's a nice example.
6: The gas is methane, basically the same stuff you might burn in your stove or furnace. Researcher Katie Walter-Anthony, whom you heard there in this video, has become well-known for these pyrotechnic displays.
7: Because it's a really good test of whether or not the gas that we see in the lakes is methane.
6: And that's important to know because methane is a potent greenhouse gas. It doesn't last as long in the atmosphere as carbon dioxide, but in that shorter time, it packs a much stronger warming punch. Turns out there's a huge amount of organic matter trapped in the Arctic's permanently frozen ground. And as the Arctic warms up, it's starting to decompose and release methane into the atmosphere. Walter Anthony says there can be hundreds of thousands of methane seeps under a single Arctic lake.
7: And then when you look at a map and realize that the Arctic has millions of lakes, and those lakes all contain methane, the numbers start to really add up.
6: And it's not just lakes. Permafrost covers nearly a quarter of the northern hemisphere. And altogether, it holds twice the carbon that's currently in the atmosphere. So if even a fraction of this were to escape, as it's expected to do, the warming effect on the planet would be huge. It's one of those nasty feedbacks scientists talk about that has the potential to cause runaway global warming.
8: I now declare open the second meeting of the conference of the parties.
6: Policymakers parties. at the U.N. climate talks in Doha, Qatar this week are grappling with these very questions. Kevin Schaefer with the U.S. National Snow and Ice Data Center is in Doha as the lead author of a new U.N. report on the dangers of warming permafrost. He says the message to negotiators of a promised climate treaty is simple. If the emissions targets negotiated by the treaty do not account for these emissions from thawing permafrost, we're going to overshoot our target climate of two degrees above pre-industrial level. Two degrees being the cutoff for avoiding the most catastrophic effects of global warming. Current international projections for warming don't take Arctic methane into account. And Schaefer says unlike emissions from burning fossil fuels, those from thawing permafrost are harder to stop. Even if we totally eliminated fossil fuel emissions today, the permafrost would continue to thaw for 20 or 30 years just responding to the temperature increases we already have. Schaefer says current warming trends likely will add a huge amount of Arctic methane to the atmosphere, although no one can say exactly how much. His new report calls for nations with extensive permafrost to create monitoring networks to get a better handle on the problem. Such an effort is already underway in the U.S. So this is a video of us flying over the Inoko Wilderness near McGrath, Alaska. Chip Miller of NASA is part of a five-year project to monitor both CO2 and methane levels over permafrost. And what you see here is sporadically forested area, mostly swamp. Miller says the flights are helping put real numbers on just how much carbon is being emitted as the permafrost thaws. The amazing thing about this is we found some of the highest concentrations of carbon dioxide and methane that we observed anywhere in Alaska. So we're seeing something that would be associated with concentrations like you might see in a city or around oil and gas production even though it's completely out in the wilderness. Measurements like these should clear up some of the uncertainty surrounding arctic methane emissions but that's only part of the story. An even bigger wild card lies under the arctic ocean. It's called methane hydrates.
2: For those who don't know what methane hydrates are it's a frozen form of water and methane.
6: That's Carolyn Ruppel of the U.S. Geological Survey.
2: These deposits are really important because a small volume concentrates methane by about 160 times. So if you start melting those methane hydrates, you can obviously release a lot of methane very rapidly.
6: Scientists believe subsea methane hydrates hold roughly twice the carbon contained in all the world's fossil fuels. So it's easy to see why scientists are concerned.
2: It's sometimes been called the potential Arctic methane catastrophe.
6: Ruppel says she's not worried about a catastrophic release. Most methane hydrates are so deep under the ocean that any releases aren't likely to make it to the atmosphere. But she says it's another story on the shallow continental shelves off of Siberia and Alaska. Russian scientists have reported extensive methane seeps off of eastern Siberia. On the Alaska side, Ruppel's team of scientists is trying to quantify how much methane is escaping from these subsea hydrates.
2: We've taken out this instrument that can measure methane in real time as we move the boat
6: along. And what they've found so far doesn't look good.
2: There's some very provocative patterns that might imply that methane is higher as you cross this permafrost boundary.
6: It's an indication that the shallow frozen permafrost beneath the ocean may be thawing, allowing methane to bubble up to the surface. Still, Ruppel says there are big uncertainties about what's going on with methane releases in the Arctic. She says that means it's too early to say whether there's an impending Arctic methane catastrophe. But she says it's also too early to say there isn't one. For the world, I'm Sam Eaton.
0: Sam Eaton explores the connection between Arctic warming and extreme weather, complete with photos and infographics at theworld.org. Next week on The World, we travel to three countries on three continents to explore new battlegrounds in the fight against cancer. In the world's poor countries, cancer kills more people than AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria combined.
1: People think that, oh, malaria kills, uh, other diseases are killing people from a low socioeconomic status. But cancer is the same. The truth of the matter is that cancer is a disease of the African person, just like any other person elsewhere in the world.
0: That's Dr. Jackson Oram. He's an oncologist in Uganda. For years, he was the only oncologist in a nation of more than 30 million people. Now, more cancer specialists are focusing on early detection and treatment in Uganda and in other developing countries, such as Haiti.
5: The reason we're taking it on is, is similar to the reasons we've taken on other illnesses is because people are suffering in the countries where we work, and there's something we can do about it.
0: Stories from cancer's new battlegrounds beginning Monday on The World. Geoquist, today chart your course for an island in the South Atlantic Ocean. Nobody lives there, nobody human anyway, but visitors there say that the island's snow-covered peaks, glacial ice, and blue-green bays are spectacular. This used to be a busy whaling station. Nowadays, it's home to giant petrels, elephant seals, and reindeer. But it's no paradise. It's got fierce winds they sweep in from the Drake Passage and Antarctica. One more thing the island has, rats, lots of them. They arrived on whaling boats and stayed there. We're going to hear from a scientist who has plans to do away with these non-native rodents in the second half of the program. This is The World on PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on The World, Guatemalans seek justice in Canada. Villagers travel to Toronto to sue a Canadian mining company over alleged atrocities. Their lawyer says the case cannot be tried back home.
1: The Guatemalan legal system is is basically corrupt. It's open to intimidation and threatening of witnesses. You basically can't get justice in Guatemala.
3: The world is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com.
0: I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. It's been a dramatic day of testimony from Bradley Manning. He is the U.S. Army private accused of giving hundreds of thousands of classified documents to the website WikiLeaks. Bradley Manning faces a court-martial on 22 charges, among them aiding the enemy. Arun Roth is covering the pretrial hearing at Fort Meade, Maryland, for The World and for PBS Frontline. Earlier today, Arun told us that Manning testified about what happened after his arrest, including his confinement in Kuwait that left him suicidal.
9: He was in a tent where there were two eight-by-eight-foot, what he described as cages more than cell. He described them as being like animal cages. And uh, he was miserable there. They would uh, shake down his cell, do a search two or three times a day. He stopped making his bed because there was no point to it. They would just tear up his stuff every day. And he was completely cut off from the outside world. He was then flown from Kuwait to the United States. He was taken down to uh, the Marine Corps brig at Quantico, Virginia, where he stayed for about nine months. And that's the very difficult period of his confinement that's being gone over here.
0: Tell me in court, give us the visual of what the lawyer and Manning did in court. (laughs)
9: Well, yesterday, Manning and his lawyer, they had a a white outline on the floor of Manning's Quantico cell, so people could see vividly how small a place it was, how confined it was. And so the judge could see as well this tiny place, which contained a toilet and a cot, basically, and not an awful lot of room for anything else. They moved around inside that space and also showed the only items that Manning said, aside from him were not actually fixed to the cell. That That was his mattress and his suicide smock and his suicide blanket, which are these versions of blankets which are very stiff, very rough, and are designed so that they can't be torn apart to use to injure oneself.
0: And so he actually put on a replica of one of these blankets to show how cumbersome it was and that he needed help to even get out of it. This was to presumably keep him from uh, from committing suicide.
9: Exactly, yes. And, and at, at that time, he was even his underwear was taken away from him for fear that uh, he might use that to injure himself.
0: And his defense right now is what?
9: The defense is trying to show that, that this treatment in Quantico was uh, was punitive, that it was done to punish him, not to protect him. And so they've been trying to build up this case showing all these psychiatrists who have said that, no, he shouldn't have been under the restrictive conditions. The authorities there had talked about their concerns about his erratic behavior based on what he was doing in the cell. And Manning just kind of blew that off as a psychiatrist did as well as being that he was just coping with an extremely boring situation that they talked about how he would have imaginary sword fights in his cell or make faces with himself in the mirror. And, and he said, you know, the mirror is the most entertaining thing in that room and there's nothing else to do or, or, or look at. You know, I was just doing this out of sheer, unmitigated, out of my mind, boredom.
0: And he's talking about the treatment as well, because what he wants is for the charges to be dropped based on the time he already served, which he says was punitive time.
9: Yes, the judge could throw this out if she finds that this was unlawful pretrial punishment. It's more likely that that would actually get started in the sentencing than actually throw the entire case out.
7: Reporter Arun
0: Roth covering Bradley Manning's pretrial hearing for The World and for PBS Frontline. Thank you very much, Arun. Thanks, Lisa. Arun's been blogging for us while he's at Fort Meade. You can read his latest post on what psychiatrists say about Bradley Manning's mental state. Go to theworld.org. Five Guatemalans from remote villages have made a long trek to Toronto in search of justice. The group is suing a Canadian mining company. The villagers claim that Hud Bay Minerals is to blame for violence in their villages, including murder and gang rape. The company denies any responsibility. The CBC's Laura Lynch has the story from Toronto.
7: After traveling for two days from their tiny villages... Four Guatemalan women and one man arrive in Toronto. Their sandals suggest they're not prepared to face sub-zero temperatures here. But Angelica Choc is ready to face those she blames for the death of her husband.
10: When the plane landed in Canada,
7: I felt a great sadness. But I'm here to find justice. Adolfo Ich was shot to death in 2009. He was a community leader fighting efforts to evict villagers from their land. Through tears, Shok recalls the moment her son broke the news. He told me, mommy, mommy, they've killed my
10: father. I couldn't believe it.
7: In court documents, Schock and the others claim security officers employed by Hudbay's Guatemalan subsidiary are responsible for the violence. But they claim Hudbay is liable because it knew the officers weren't licensed, were poorly trained, and carried illegal weapons. The company denies that and says it respects and protects human rights.
8: Gloria, Gloria,
7: the words may be familiar. But at San Lorenzo Church in North Toronto, the mainly Latino congregation's songs of praise carry a distinctive rhythm. Today, the worshippers are welcoming the Guatemalans who have come to share their stories. Rosa Elbira slumps in her chair, choking back tears, as she recounts the day in 2007 when she says she was repeatedly raped by nine men. Among them, she claims, were police soldiers, and security officers for the mining company. Beside her, holding her hand in support, sits 23-year-old Herman Chobchok. He's paralyzed from the waist down, a bullet still lodged near his spine. Herman admits to moments of despair since the day in 2009 when he says he was shot by the head of the mining company's security detail.
2: Look at me. I'm in a wheelchair.
9: Look at what I've become. I'm not lying.
7: This next week,
2: you
8: will be asked questions by the lawyers for the mining companies.
7: Their Canadian lawyers must use translators as they prepare them for the first step in their attempts to sue the company they blame. Hudbey argues the claims won't hold up in a Canadian court, but its lawyers are trying to stop the case from ever getting that far, arguing any trial should be held in Guatemala. But the lawyer for the Guatemalans, Murray Klippenstein, says that's unrealistic.
1: Many uh, organizations note that the Guatemalan legal system is is basically corrupt. It's open to intimidation and threatening of witnesses. You basically can't get justice in Guatemala.
7: Audrey Macklin is a professor at the University of Toronto Law School. They're facing um, significant but not insurmountable hurdles.
10: It will be a significant challenge.
7: She says Canadian judges have traditionally been reluctant to hear these kinds of cases, even when the plaintiffs argue that the justice systems in their own nations are corrupt or ineffective. American courts have also faced many cases involving multinational companies operating abroad. They've been generally more willing to let the plaintiffs be heard. Retired Supreme Court of Canada Justice Ian Binney isn't familiar with this case, But he says the time may be coming to rethink the issue.
11: Eventually, the courts are going to have to face up to the fact that in a responsible legal system, uh, people have a right to a day in court. And and if the only court available uh, is in Canada, then that's uh, where the problem should be faced.
7: Taking comfort among those supporting them at the church, the Guatemalans know they've got a long, hard fight ahead of them. They insist their only route to justice for what they claim happened in their villages is through a Canadian courtroom. For The World, I'm Laura Lynch in Toronto.
0: Mexico's President Felipe Calderon officially leaves office tomorrow. He's got a fellowship at Harvard. Most Mexicans will remember Calderon's tenure for his violent war on drugs. More than 50,000 people died in drug-related violence during his six-year term. While it's now the task of the incoming president, Enrique Peña Nieto, to calm the violence. He faces other challenges as well, including presenting a new face for the Institutional Revolutionary Party, or the PRI. That's the party that ruled Mexico for 70 years. Miles Esti reports from Mexico City.
12: Just days before taking office, Enrique Peña Nieto highlighted one of the key goals of his new presidency with visits to American and Canadian leaders, to strengthen Mexico's economy through foreign trade and investment. Mexico has become uh, not simply uh, an important bilateral partner, uh, but is today... But even big financial improvements will hardly glaze over the recent bloodshed. Millions of Mexicans remain personally affected by the insecurity, and foreign investors remain wary of the body counts. Luis Rubio is the chairman of the Mexico City-based Center of Research for Development. He says it will take more than just a drop in murders to inspire the needed confidence.
0: I don't think it's an issue of numbers. First of all, it's an issue of perception. People have to be convinced that they are not going to be more subject to risk than they would in, in another place.
12: Rubio describes the incoming administration as highly competent and believes they have the tools to reduce the destruction of the ongoing drug war and boost the economy. But he also emphasizes that narcotics are not the root of Mexico's violence. And this is what needs fixing.
0: If drugs didn't exist, we would still have the same problem because it would be with any number of other things that have nothing to do with drugs themselves. The problem of Mexico is the lack of a modern police force that is respected by the citizenship and the judicial system that resolves problems swiftly and effectively.
12: Official complaints against army and police under Calderón total in the thousands. Corruption is widespread and previous attempts at police reform have not produced results. Yet, explains Alejandro Hope, Director of Security for the Mexican Institute for Competitiveness, a key pillar of Peña Nieto's security plan seems to rest on the creation of a new 40,000-strong police force. What has been missing in most of these attempts to create new police forces are internal and external controls. Just creating a new police force without actually tackling that will probably not produce better results than what you have now. American presidents usually have 100 days to prove themselves. Peña Nieto may not even have that. Even before he was president, massive marches have protested his affiliation to the corrupt history of the PRI, which ran the country for decades. This animosity continues. Organizers plan to protest, and perhaps even block, his inauguration tomorrow. Pope says that Peña will want to quickly prove he represents a positive new era for the party. The political pitch is that they are effective. So there will be very, very strong pressures on delivery. What we're going to see is a government in a hurry. Uh, a government in a hurry is not necessarily a good thing. Facing a vocal public opposition and a minority in Congress, it will be tough for the new president and his party to enact rapid change without compromise. This is not a word historically associated with the PRI. But with voters eager for a less violent, more prosperous Mexico, and critics keeping a close watch, it may be a crucial one for Peña Nieto to get anything done. For the world, this is Miles Esté in Mexico City.
0: We've got the answer to our geo-quiz for the day now. We were looking for a rugged, mountainous island in the South Atlantic Ocean. Tony Martin is an expert in animal conservation from the University of Dundee in Scotland. Professor Martin, the answer to our geo-quiz today is, I'd say, about 7,000 miles away from where you are right now.
11: Uh, Yes, well, um, the island we're talking about is uh, the island of South Georgia, uh, which is uh, about three or four days sailing east of the southern tip of South America. The island was discovered by Captain Cook in 1775, and not many years after he took the the stories back of this wondrous island full of of wildlife, and particularly seals, wooden boats from both the United States and from the UK in particular made their way down. There were, um, in the, the late 1700s, apparently hundreds of small sealing boats, and they took with them, by accident of course, rats and mice, which then invaded this island, these rats just chomped their way through, literally millions, probably tens of millions of seabirds. And as a result, most of the main island of South Georgia today is bereft of the majority of birds, the smaller birds, um, which just cannot uh, withstand this um, predation by rats.
0: So to deal with the problem, you're going to be doing a lot more than setting a few traps. Uh, There are a lot of rats, and it sounds like pretty desperate way to handle them. What, what are you going to be doing?
11: Yeah, well, the, the task um, that faces us is to eradicate rats. And the only way in which it can be done on an island of anything like this scale, 100 miles long and maybe 20 miles wide, is to use helicopters to spread bait pellets. My job as the director of the project is to plan it such that every single rat on the island has access to at least one bait pellet.
0: And how much of the bait pellet, how much of the poison are you going to be dropping?
11: Uh, Well, in this coming year, we're going to be dropping just short of 200 tons of pellets.
0: Holy smokes, that's a lot of rat poison. Do you anticipate that there's going to be collateral damage? I mean, one would think that the island itself would suffer.
11: So my job as a zoologist has been to find out how we can do the job of getting rid of the bad guys, the rats, without getting rid of the good guys, the birds. And one for example, one technique of doing this is to go late in the season as we are almost into winter so that most of the migratory birds have already left the island so they, they, they're not vulnerable. It, it is of course enormously um, regrettable that any birds should die as a result of this. But what we're looking for here is the recovery of tens or arguably a hundred million pairs of seabirds to come back to the island after we finish this work.
0: I wonder if primarily this is the kind of idea that works on paper, and in reality, if you still have some questions about how effective it might be.
11: Well, the challenge that faces us is enormous. This is um, going to be 10 times the size of anything attempted uh, like this in the past. And we're as confident as we can be that the plans we have in place will allow us to succeed to get rid of the, of the rats and the vulnerable birds, which for two centuries have been held back by this man-made plague, uh, suddenly b- to get a new lease of life. You see young ducks. We're expecting to see pipits, this, this lovely songbird found only on South Georgia, and these small uh, burrowing petrels uh, just having a new lease of life, reclaiming an island which is, in effect, their ancestral home.
0: Tony Martin is an expert in animal conservation who's headed soon for South Georgia Island, which is the answer to our geo-quiz. He's going there to help rid the island of its rats. Thanks again. It's a pleasure. Our global hit and more coming up on PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Tonight, some 17 million people in Chile tune in for a huge national event. It's the Teleton, a 27-hour telethon to try to raise tens of millions of dollars for disabled children. It's a big deal for businesses and the government in Chile. But as Olivia Krellin reports, some claim the Teleton has become a vehicle for profiteering and government neglect.
10: The whole of Chile is Teleton crazy. Banners line every street, motorists paint messages of support on their car windows, and TV stations run endless commercials featuring the show's founder and host, Don Francisco.
11: Todos los el mapa de la
10: All of us Chileans change the global disability map, Don Francisco opines. In these 27 hours, I am sure that we are going to show once more that we will continue to support our children that are full of dreams and illusions. 26,000 disabled kids each year depend on donations given on this one extended day of the year. But not everyone feels the same enthusiasm for the work the Teleton does. Wheelchair-bound Claudio Gonzalez, who took part in the campaign as a child, is one of the 99% of Chile's disabled adults without a job. He's highly critical of its donors' motivations.
11: The Teleton's sponsors earn money,
6: they get publicity from the show, they want us to make the public feel sorry for us. They use us, and we're left with nothing.
10: Gonzalez is referring to the free TV advertisements that private companies receive in exchange for donating to the Teleton. This fuels the more basic argument of the campaign's critics. Public policy, not private philanthropy, should be providing for the country's disabled. Alejandro Hernandez is president of Chile's leading disability NGO the National Foundation for the
1: Disabled.
10: All the rehabilitation centres that work with children should be under the roof of the management and administration of the Ministry of Health, not of businesses. Hernandez says that the Chilean government is shirking both the constitutional and UN-declared responsibility to take care of the country's disabled. But Maria Jimena Rivas, the National Director of the government-run Disability Ministry, Senadis says that the government simply can't afford to do the work that the Teleton does. Why is the state not able to take charge of the Teleton? The answer is simple, because we lack the resources. Today, in this country, there's not enough money for the government to be able to maintain the operation of the Teleton with the quality, experience and resources that they have. Last year, the Teleton raised around $55 million, more than double what the Chilean government allots to Senadis, the disability ministry. Even so, the Teleton's 11 rehabilitation centres still only provide equipment and services, such as physical therapy, for 7% of Chile's disabled community, and only for kids. Adults and those with non-physical disabilities are excluded entirely. Reva says that the government is simply overwhelmed. There are 93% of other people with disabilities who are not covered by the Teleton's work. Well, we have to work for them, so you can see our problem. But Mauricio Munoz isn't buying it. Munoz was born blind and has never been allowed to participate in the Teleton. He says it's nice that the Teleton raises so much money, and it certainly helps some people. But he says that the giant fundraiser also lets the Chilean government off the hook.
4: In Chile, things are bad for us. We lack government support, and the institutions aren't doing their job properly. There's a lack of motivation and will to resolve this problem, because things could be different.
10: Whether or not that's true, few will say outright that there shouldn't be a teleton. Catalina Parot says if nothing else, the event draws international recognition to Chile and highlights the needs of the disabled. Perot is Chile's first disabled government minister, and she says that the perception of those with disabilities has radically changed since she was a child, thanks to the Teleton.
5: What Teleton founder Don Francisco has done, beyond any criticism that might exist, is to make people confront their fear of the disabled.
10: For The World, I'm Olivia Krellin in Santiago, Chile.
0: Here's a folk song from Chile. Yo vendo unos ojos negros. You may know the 1950s version by Nat King Cole.
6: Yo vendo unos ojos negros. ¿Quién me los quiere comprar? Los vendo por empusteres. Porque me han pagado mal.
0: Now, a singer born in Peru, Silvana Kane, has recorded that song for her solo debut album, La Jadinera.
8: Yo vendo unos ojos negros. Quien me los quiere comprar, los vendo por hechiceros, porque me han pagado mal, yo vendo los ojos negros, quien me los quiere comprar, los vendo por hechiceros, porque me han pagado mal, más te quisiera más te amo yo, si todas las noches las paso, suspirando por tu amor, más te quisiera, más te amo yo, si todas las noches las paso, suspirando por tu amor.
0: Silvana Kane is best known for fronting the Vancouver-based band Pacifica. Now, as a solo artist, Kane goes back to the songs of her youth—songs she heard while she grew up in Peru. Many of them are classics throughout South America. She says recording these standards is her way to pay tribute to her South American musical heroes, people such as Peru's Chabuca Granda and Chilean composer Violeta Pada, who wrote the album's title track.
8: But Bye.
0: La Hadinera, sung for us by Sylvana Kane. Our theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg. The world is produced by Jeb Sharp, with Andrea Crossan, Joyce Hackle, Carol Hills, David Lavallee, April Peavy, Adeline Sear, and Tracy Tong. Ann Lopez is our director. Our London staff includes Ian Rosser and Rahul Jaglekar. Our editors are Jennifer Gorin, Aaron Schachter, David Barron, and Peter Thompson. William Troop is senior editor, Chris Wolf is news editor, and our managing editor is Jonathan Dyer. The executive producer of The World is Andrew Sussman. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Lisa Mullins. Join us online over the weekend at TheWorld.org. <laughs>
3: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, by the Henry Luce Foundation, for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia, And by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI, Public Radio International.